The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead, and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney, and I'm also a Bankruptcy Law Certified Specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. So in addition to my JD and my certification, I hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say I'm both a master of the laws of taxation law and a master of the laws of intellectual property laws. And because of my education, my training, my experiences, my life's observations, plural, and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and the creation, preservation and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. I also practice some related fields in my overall financial practice, including debt wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, some insurance law, and of course, taxation law. Now, with these areas of law as my reference points, that is to say, as they relate to the personal, familial, community, and small business aspects of finance, I spent the greater part of the last nearly 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic autonomy of women and people and communities of color, including indigenous communities. And because I was born into a military family, I was actually born at a military hospital, (laughs) and I grew up as a military brat, and I always will be one. And you know, I helped create another one with my former spouse, who was also in the military. I have firsthand knowledge of just how hard it can be sometimes financially and economically for our citizen soldiers, sailors, airmen, and women, and Marines, and their families in our less than sometimes patriotic capital-based economic system. Them, especially after these individuals and their families separate from the service. As such, I proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And I love to share with you the fact that I was raised by a father who gave back to this country big time via his service in the army, who informed me that I too had a duty to give back to my community and to our society as a whole and to the universe through some form of service of my own choosing in return or in small payment for the great gifts and innumerable blessings God has given me. And on top of having a great father committed to steering me in the right direction as I was preparing to leave his nest, I had the great fortune to both know and spend a lot of time with and then actually became great friends with both my maternal and paternal grandmothers both of whom survived the four great economic challenges of the 20th century the Great Depression, the privations of World War II, and the systemic racism and misogyny that I have to admit continues through and to our society today. But these women were great role models for me. And as these wonderful women helped raise me and always loved me and shared with me their stories of their grandparents who raised and loved them in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South, 
and is out of my great love and respect for these women who are always with me in spirit, urging me on to do the right thing along with my late father, that when the situation is right through my current chosen form of service, that is to say practicing and also speaking and writing about the law, I am sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of women and seniors and the disabled who find themselves the targets of and unfortunately more and more the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of disabled adult and elder financial abuse that you could ever imagine that seems to be running rampant in our society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money and more and more probably than not these days. Although the economy is on the upswing, many of us still don't have a sufficient amount of dollars. And we also discuss our overall finances and what you and I may need to do to protect or reclaim or rehabilitate our or our families or our small businesses, financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational forum. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show doesn't provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strive strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least a general outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find the qualified professional help I sincerely believe you need if you're having a legal issue that intersects with your finances and or your assets, but especially your debt. So today I want to broach a new subject, that is to say, resiliency in the face of adversity, what it means and why we all need to incorporate resiliency into our daily lives if we're going to survive and maybe even figure out a way to thrive in these very troubling times where we are witnessing almost on a daily basis. Many, if not most of those in power, tell us to our face that right is wrong and wrong is right and left is right and right is left and up is down and down is up. Uh, That truth is a lie and a lie is the truth, including that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ stands with racists, sexists, misogynists, anti-Semites, Islophobics, racists, and autocrats, and that we the people should join them in their unholy alliances. I say no. I say we need to seek out the truth and then rely on that truth to support each other in our individual paths towards, you know, how we inculcate mental, emotional, and intellectual fortitude that we will need in our everyday lives. And that it that inculcation of this fortitude is the best remedy to cure the apathy and the self-centeredness that we have learned that allows us to go along with those in power who invite us to stand idly by and allow this beautiful planet that God gave us to inhabit and provide proper stewardship over, watch it decay before our very eyes including the soullessness of many of us who inhabit this planet. This is a planet that God intended that we should leave 
better than we found it for our children and grandchildren. And I, you know, I, sometimes I think to myself, God must be really angry with us. Now, those of you who know me know that I love movies, especially great movies. I've loved movies since I was a little girl. My older brother and I would go to the movies every Saturday to see serials and westerns that would transport me to wherever the actors were in my own mind. And like many kids raised in the 60s, my family had a television and just about every weekday after school, there would be a television show that ran classic movies of the 40s and the 50s. I watched them and I imagined myself in those stories as well. I must admit that until COVID-19, I'd spend either every Friday, Saturday, or Sunday afternoon in one of the great Bay Area cinemas, a habit that I had started when my former spouse and I got transferred to the Presidio of San Francisco from our duty stations in Europe in the late 70s. My grandmother had lived here in the Bay Area, and she lived in North the North Beach section of San Francisco, and she loved to go to the movies at least once a week, and I went with her as her date until she passed away, and I just kept going on my own. I said all that to say this. I believe I've seen just about every great American movie that's been produced since 1975, and via television, most of the great movies made since the 30s. So I know a great four-star movie when I see one. For example, I know that Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove and 2001 Space Odyssey are deserving of every one of their four stars. The same goes for Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather and Godfather 2. Now, Godfather 3, not so much, although I have to admit that Harry Connick Jr.'s rendition of Promise Me You'll Remember over the closing title, it was and remains a most beautiful song in in any movie that you could ever want to see. Now, I also know that Ridley Scott's Alien was Alien was and remains a great movie, along with James Cameron's reinterpretation and continuance of that theme in his great movie Aliens, which introduced the character of Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, as the first female lead with a brain and wits in an action movie in an area that era that up until then had portrayed women only as accessories to men and sometimes dis- not very politely so I'll put it that way. Then there's today we have Christopher Nolan who has directed, co-wrote and produced with his wife Emma, Emma Thomas, a handful of four-star movies over the last several years including Dunkirk, Inception, Oppenheimer which is out now and my favorite interstellar, because I have to admit I'm really just a space geek. So I've taken you down my memory memory lanes concerning movies to give you my bona fides in that I am a, I am a connoisseur and I know a great movie when I see one. And it's all about the content of the screenplay, the cast and the crew, the music, the sets, the cinematography, and the production value. But it all starts with a compelling subject. So when I tell you that earlier this month, I came across a four-star rated documentary on HBO that I had no knowledge even existed, and I was totally engrossed for its entire one minutes. In its cinematography, it, it was beautiful, and it had me in tears by the end of the movie due to its subject. 
the compelling tale of a family overcoming wave after wave of adversity, but sticking to their beliefs in each other and in the future and the center of the universe. So when I come back, I'm going to tell you about a great little movie entitled The Biggest Little Farm. But first, we're going to take a short break and I'll see you on the other side. Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion on today's topic. Resiliency in the face of adversity. What it means and why we all need to incorporate resiliency into our daily lives if we're going to survive and maybe even figure out a way to thrive in these very troubling times that we're witnessing almost on a daily basis people that are telling us untruths and trying to convince us that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ stands with racist, sexist, misogynist, anti-Semites, Islamophobics, I'm sorry, I'm not getting that word right, fascists and autocrats, and that we the people should join them in their unholy alliance. I say no. And as a metaphor, I want to share with you all the sum and substance of a four-star rated documentary on HBO that I had no knowledge of that had totally engrossed me for the entire 91 minutes by its cinematography and it had me in tears near the end because of the subject matter. It was a compelling tale of a family overcoming wave after wave of adversity by sticking to their beliefs in each other and to the future, and although they don't portray it in the movie, I got to say there was a, the hand of our Lord and Savior that was guiding them. Now, the name of this movie is The Biggest Little Farm. And as published in Wikipedia, The Biggest Little Farm is a 2018 American documentary film directed by John Chester. And the film profiles Mr. Chester and his wife, Molly, as they acquire and establish themselves on a farm called that they renamed Apricot Lane Farms. And it's located in Moore Park, California. Now, the film premiered on September 1, 2018 at the Telluride Film Festival and had a second screening at the Toronto International Film Festival. And it was second runner-up in the People's Choice Awards for documentaries. And it was selected for uh, the opening night uh, in um, the documentary uh, film uh, for New York City on November 2018. And it also um, ran at the Sundance Film Festival. So those of you who are filmophobes like me, you we know that these are, I mean that I'm a film file. I love films. Um, places where films are um, displayed to the public for the first time, independent films, and these are films of high merit. So the film itself was um, acquired and distributed by the film company Neon, and they released it for general publication or general release here in the United States on May 10, 2019 in Los Angeles and New York. And it made the short list for uh, one of the best films for the Academy Award in 2020. And so um, this film that nobody knows about (laughs) was great. So just, just a little bit more about the subject matter. 
In 2010, married couple Molly Molly and uh, John Chester decided to leave their old lives in Los Angeles. Uh, he was a cinematographer there, and she uh, was, was a cook, and she had a blog. And they purchased a 234-acre farm in Moore Park, and that's near Ventura County. And they rechristened it the Apricot Lane Farm. Now, the couple spent the next seven years, seven years has a resonance to it, transforming this arid landscape into a functioning farm using biodiversity um, as opposed to using chemicals and other um, uh, pollutants that, you know, tend to maybe solve a problem instantly, but leave uh, uh, traces that last forever. And they also incorporated all kinds of farm animals and all kinds of plants, uh, flora and fauna. Well, they faced hardships as they, you know, it was difficult keeping a farm up and running because, again, these were city slickers and they didn't know anything about farming other than they wanted to give it a try. Um, so they had a lot of frustration and anger, but they also found a group, a small group of people that believed in them and believed in what they were trying to do. And ultimately, after seven years of hard labor, this farm is beautiful. <laughs> and that's what um, uh, uh, what captivated me by watching it. And I just came across it. I was doing channels flipping. And then I went to my guide on my television and I saw this, this farm, the biggest little farm, and it had four stars to it next to it. And as I was sharing with you before the break, I know a four star movie. When I said, so how come I've never heard of this movie? And then I, I, I went, I timed it. And then I went and looked at it and it's beautiful. So in John and Molly's own words, they say, Apricot Lane Farm is a home of their um, uh, their future. And again, it was shortlisted for the film, The Biggest Little Farm, was shortlisted for an Academy Award in 2020. The, it's directed by filmmaker and farmer John Chester, and the farm is a testament to the complexity of nature and the epic odyssey to attempt to farm within a reawakening ecosystem. Now, Again, according to them, it all started with a promise to a dog and a dream. So John, the filmmaker, and Molly was a private, private traditional food chef living in Santa Monica, California. M Molly was constantly looking for nutrient-rich foods to prepare. They lived in this apartment, and one day they adopted a dog. And they tried to tra train the dog to not bark, but they, the, the dog barked all the time. Ultimately, they got evicted. So instead of looking for another apartment, they decided that they were going to try to live their dream of starting a farm. And so they found some investors who believed in what it was that they were trying to do, and they helped them buy the farm. And as I said, it was... It, it was full of boulders and nothing was growing there and they turned it into something beautiful. But along the way, they ran into all kinds of adversity. For example, they had chickens and ducks and pigs and hogs and they had um, uh, um, sheep and goats. 
but they also had coyotes. And the coyotes killed a substantial portion of their chicken and ducks. But instead of killing, setting traps and deciding to kill the coyotes, John and Molly had decided from the get-go that they were going to try to incorporate nature into their farm. So they decided to put up some um, fencing around their ducks and chicken, fencing that was, um, you know, compatible with nature. So that stopped the, the coyote somewhat. And then the next thing, after they got their first um, uh, blossom of, of apricots, birds destroyed 75% of that first crop. And they initially threw the, those, veg, the, those fruit away. Then they realized that if they used the, those fruit to feed their chickens, um, they would be creating an ecological chain where they wouldn't be throwing away anything. They wouldn't be wasting anything. And um, they could, you know, use it to enhance their livestock. Then they decided to plant ground cover to enrich the soil between the trees in their orchard. And at first they used industrial strength lawnmowers to cut the grass. But as you know, the lawnmowers, uh, they p- cause pollution. So then they decided to use their goats and sheep to, you know, cut the grass between the trees. And that worked out very well because the droppings from the animal further enriched the soil. Well, as the soil became enriched, it attracted gophers and it attracted snails that went up the trees and would eat the leaves and that would negatively impact the fruit. So they decided instead of using a pesticide to kill the gophers and the snails, they collected the snails and took them to places where there was um, an overgrowth of vegetation that they wanted to do away with. And snakes came to eat the gophers. And uh, and ultimately, in the end of the cycle, by the, in the seventh year, the, the cycle of life was working such that the farm became beautiful. So I want you all to check out this movie because it's a metaphor for how we as human beings need to learn how to live with each other. And in this environment that God gave here for us, that we are just, you know, not taking the time and energy that we need to, such that we will have something of substance to leave our children and our grandchildren, that is to say the most important thing, a planet that they can inhabit. And it also works in my practice. As you know, a lot of my clients are have facing financial difficulties, such that they just want to throw in the towel. And, 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 and some of them are very depressed. And some of them think thoughts that could end, um, end them as being uh, creatures on this planet. So I always tell my clients to please take a positive attitude about your distress because it might lead ultimately to something that will enrich your life. The process of, say, going through a bankruptcy where we work together to figure out how to save our business or to save our home. So we'll have something to leave our children. We have to stay positive. Yeah, the bank's coming after us. They want to foreclose. All of our creditors are acting crazy. And sometimes it seems like the judge is is acting a little bit weird, too. But if we keep our positive attitude 
we can move forward. And I use what's going on um, on in the news today. We see people taking advantage of each other, being less than what I consider to be a, a Christian towards each other and trying to make us all hate each other and not respect each other and be prepared to harm each other. When in fact, we have a big task before us. Those of us who share this planet have a duty to our creator to save this planet for the next generation. And, you know, so we have to work together the way John and Molly did to solve problems as they occur, knowing that if we put our brain power and our will to things, we can resolve it. So this is probably my my most spiritual show that I've ever um, um, shared with you here, this podcast. But I have just been moved to do it. Um, you know, some of my clients have had bad outcomes uh, this month and last, but we're moving forward. And I want to share that with you. So as such, the biggest little farm provides a lesson that I tell my clients facing financial difficulties. If we stay positive in the face of ad- adversity while working hard to come up with natural solutions, we can overcome just about any adversity we might face. Anyway, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So I'm going to leave it there for now, but as always closing here on Selwyn's Law, we want to stay in the right side of the law, including the primary law of life, that is resiliency in the first of adversity. Till next time, take care. Bye for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the law office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. 